will be in the last chapter of the book of Philippians. So chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. So if you want to head that direction. So before we dive in too deep, it's, uh, it's helpful that we come to somewhat of an understanding of the context of Philippians. So especially when we are diving into the end of a passage like we are today. So this is, if this is your first Sunday, uh, you will not have missed anything. We are not in the middle of a sermon series. This is it's what we call a one-off sermon, so you are, you're good. So just a bit of background. Uh, Philippians is not only a book in the Bible, it's actually it's a letter. It's an epistle that was breathed out by God, and it was penned by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And this letter would have been brought to the church publicly and read before the whole congregation by its pastor or a leader. Don't worry, I will not be doing that to you guys this morning. And this letter would have been written during Paul's Roman imprisonment, roughly between the years 60 and 62 AD, for you guys that really like dates and those sort of things. And the Philippian church was a church uh, that Paul had planted. It was actually his first church that he had planted in Europe about 10 years prior to the writing of this letter. And we would see this in Acts 16, and I say that only because then we can be certain that there is a, there's a specific love and affection that Paul would have had for these people. Now Paul writes this letter knowing that the church in Philippi is facing some hard things. Right? They're facing false teachers and disunity among themselves and sickness and, and more. But mainly they are facing persecution for proclaiming the gospel, as was Paul, obviously, with being imprisoned. Yet even still, Paul calls them to joy and rejoicing as he himself rejoices greatly in the Lord throughout this letter. Now, just to clarify what prison was like during this time, it was, uh, it was rarely long-term. So those who were either in prison were either a waiting trial or the outcome of their trial, which was most often execution. And all depending on your citizenship, you were treated accordingly. So this means you could have been a very high status, a VIP, as we would say today. But that didn't matter if you were not a Roman citizen. You were, you were treated like scum. But Paul, being a Roman citizen, was given somewhat better treatment. Now, don't go too far with that. He wasn't, he wasn't like chilling down at the Hilton by any means. He's, he's still imprisoned, but he would have been given simple pleasures, if you will. So he would be responsible for maintaining himself under house arrest. He would be allowed a certain amount of visitors and even food rations for the day, but they would have needed to have been provided for by an outside source, like through the gift that the Philippians have given him. So you can understand then his thankfulness shown to them for their gift in this letter. It's also important that we understand that the church in Philippi was not a wealthy church by any means. They were actually rather poverty-stricken. But they still gave to Paul when they had the means by which to get it to him, meaning somebody to actually deliver it, right? There's no, no cash app. There's no PayPal or Zelle back then. Like somebody actually had to take the gift to Paul, and they were eager to give to Paul because of their great love for him and his great love for them. And Paul's letter is just that. It's one of great affection and love with thankfulness to God for the church in Philippi and for partnering with him in the advance of the gospel of Christ. So I want you to picture it with me, right? Picture Paul thinking about his soon trial and his possible death, writing this letter from prison, right? He'd be, he'd be constantly chained to a Roman guard to ensure that he would not escape. And this letter would be picked up and journeyed back by a man named Epaphroditus, who was currently with Paul and had journeyed to him to give the gift that the Philippians had put together. 
Now, Epaphroditus would travel by foot and by boat, and the trip between Philippi and Rome is 800 miles. So 1,600 miles round trip, just to give you an idea of what that would be like. It would be like walking from here to Hilton Head, South Carolina, and back. Right? So it is a long trip. This letter is dirty. smells like prison. It's tarnished by salt water. It is quite literally diseased from its carrier, Epaphroditus, who became ill while with Paul. Yet its words are soon to be a great comfort because Paul's affection, his joy in Christ, and love for God and his people is bleeding through this letter as he shows thankfulness for the care that they have shown him, as he rebukes them for their disunity, as he explains the persecution that he has had and is facing, and as he encourages them to keep the faith and to continue presenting the glorious truth of the gospel. And to like him, like Christ, joyfully endure and do all things for the glorification of God our Father. So if you're not already there with me, would you please turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. Follow along with me as I read. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, this is the inherent word of the Lord, church. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we believe that, uh, that this is your breathed out word. And therefore, it is alive and it is at work. And so I pray for us as we study it together this morning that it would be as Second Timothy 3 says it is, that it would be profitable for our teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Do this work in us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you are a note taker, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, this message is titled Redefining Joy. For those of you that know me well, uh, which is a few of you, um, I'm, I'm a guy that really thrives in days like today, all right? I'm, I'm pretty melancholic. I am, uh, I'm pretty chill. I'm pretty calm, usually. Uh, it takes a lot to get me, like, super pumped and amped. I am a... I'm actually a guy that struggles a lot with joy. So if you didn't already know that about me, well, you, uh, you do now. And so you're probably thinking, uh, great, what is this dude that uh, struggles with joy doing preaching to me about joy? And that's a good question. And uh, to get our minds in the right state, 
I would ask a question in return. What if true joy doesn't always look like what we think? What if true joy isn't just this exuberant, always smiling, happy-go-lucky persona? What if it's what if it's much deeper and more sustaining than merely superficial happiness? This is the kind of joy that I believe we see from Paul in this letter. So this morning, let's look at two things. Let's look at Paul's joy in God, what it looked like and how it produced contentment in him. And let's look at God's generosity to his people. All right, so I, uh, I suffered severely in school with this condition. Many of you probably have heard of it. Uh, it's called paying attention, all right? Specifically in all of my English classes. And uh, my mom was in the congregation in Ashland this morning, and I thought her head was going to fly off. She was, she was nodding along. She agreed. And this actually resulted in a, uh, a lack of understanding of what words actually mean sometimes. Uh, I was telling the story this morning at a members meeting one time in Ashland. Pastor Ronnie had said that one of our, one of our deacons was invaluable. All right? And I came up to him afterwards. I said, dude, that wasn't very nice. You shouldn't have told him that. Like, no, Kyle is really valuable. And Ronnie was like, dude, invaluable means that like, he can't be replaced. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I thought you were saying he had no value. <laughs> so I know that uh, we can lose our understanding of words. I also know that when we use words often enough, they can lose the effect of their meaning. And I would argue that this is what has happened to us when we think of and we talk about joy. This letter is filled with joy and rejoicing from Paul, which might seem counterintuitive to us considering his current situation. Yet Paul is rejoicing, and not just in spite of his current state, like we might think, but he rejoices for his current state because his, his suffering and his persecution, they, they mean something. For him, it means the advance of the gospel of Christ, the joy of his salvation. His possible death means something. It means that he will be with Christ the joy of his salvation. And this is what he means when earlier in the letter, in chapters 1, verse 21, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's not only encouraging the Philippians and us to rejoice in the Lord in all things, he is showing us what it looks like. He starts off in this portion of the text, and he says in 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul's not only rejoicing that the Philippians had given him a gift or that they had partnered with him or that they had simply revived their concern for him. He's rejoicing in the Lord that he put it on their hearts to do so. There's a difference there. The difference is the object of Paul's joy. Paul, he is thanking them, of course, for the gift that they had so generously given to him, but even more so rejoicing in God being the generous author of that gift and reminding them that God is pleased with their sacrifice, that that it increases to their credit, for he is confident that God will continue to provide their needs for them based on his own generosity. And this fuels Paul's joy, which we can be certain is weakened in his current state. But Paul has a specific joy that is found in God alone. And this, this specific joy is being strengthened by the generosity of God through the gift of the Philippians. This joy is strengthened even when Christ is preached and proclaimed out of envy, in an attempt to afflict and add persecution to Paul. He counts this as a blessing, as a joy, which again doesn't, doesn't really seem to make much logical sense to us, but remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says this, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul lives this truth. In chapters 1, verse 18, he says that his desire is in that every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And he goes even further in the second half of 118. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 217 through 20, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in the Lord. 3.1, Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Are you tired of hearing me say rejoice yet? Because if so, don't read through Philippians because there's a lot more. Do you see this, this theme of joy and rejoicing from Paul here? And he's not only calling the Philippians and us to rejoicing, he's, he's living it out for us to see. And the question that we should ask is how? How are you so full of joy, Paul? I mean, what gives? You are you're chained up to another man. You probably stink a little or a lot. You don't know if you're about to die or not. You're hungry. You're in poverty. How, how do you rejoice like that? I mean, if rejoicing by definition means to express that you have found great pleasure and delight in something, how do you do that when everything around you seems to be crumbling? How do we delight no matter what? How do we rejoice like Paul in the midst of any situation when to those around us and even ourselves, it seems like we have no reason to? We do it through the power of Christ alone, period. Nothing more, no additions, all right? No 10-step no program, no self-help book. You don't do that. We do it through Christ alone by finding the greatest delight that is available to us, namely God. Paul's ultimate delight, it isn't found in his current circumstance. His joy doesn't hinge on whether or not he is in need or in plenty. His ultimate delight rests in God. It's hidden in Christ, who's not circumstantial. He's not temporary. He's not like our things and our possessions that are here today and gone tomorrow. And we so often try to find joy and contentment in he's he's from everlasting to everlasting he's ultimate he's eternal i want that joy the problem is is that i'm sure like many of you i don't always feel that joy at least not in the way that i want to feel it and i believe therein lies the problem for us we want joy and contentment to look pretty and easy and smiley and to, and to just make us feel good. Come on, joy. Just make me feel good. But that's not what Paul's joy looks like. Why do we think joy always looks like that? I mean, based off of what we know in Scripture, that's not what David's joy looked like in the Psalms. That's not what Christ's joy looked like. It wasn't all smiley. 
coming out of Easter weekend and Good Friday, if you joined in with us uh, in Ashland, we had a challenge, not really a challenge, but a, uh, an encouragement to read from John 12 all the way up until Jesus' crucifixion. You think it was easy and comfortable for Christ? His joy wasn't easy, but it was satisfied and it was enduring. And Hebrews 12.2 says we should look to this enduring joy as an example. The writer of Hebrews says this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ's joy was enduring because of his delight in God as his father. And Paul looked to Christ's example. Don't miss this. Don't miss where Paul's joy and contentment come from because it's not just out of his duty to God, but out of delight in God. Even when that delight is weakened through current circumstances like his current persecution. Think about where your joy rests this morning. Does your joy hinge on your duty to God? Or is it being sustained and lived out in a delight in God? And I'm not talking about duty as in obedience. That is a separate thing. I'm talking about are you finding all of your hope and all of your joy and what you can do for God? Are you delighting in what he's done for you in Christ? I think if we're honest, we find ourselves often operating in a duty over delight mindset in our Christianity. I know that I do. I, I struggle with that. And I need, I need the help of the Holy Spirit to realign my hope and my joy back to God because my dutifulness, it never sustains me. It falls short when I have to rely on it during times of trial and hardship. But my joy in God through Christ does not and will not. Lasting joy, real joy can only be found in God by delighting yourself in him through the power of Christ. I actually believe that, that this would be easier to preach as a just do it message, as what I like to affectionately call a Nike message. All right, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, be big boys and girls, learn to just be joyful, be content. Oh yeah, and that last one, start giving more money to us so that we can advance the gospel. Which by the way is how I've heard it preached before. But that's not what's going down with Paul here. Because it doesn't attack the heart of the issue for us. It doesn't go after the heart of the Philippians for Paul. He wants their joy in God to fuel their contentment. To fuel their generosity. Church, the Christian life is not just about trying to be happy. Or, or just doing your best to think good thoughts. To be content. Or need, even necessarily about being dutiful to God. It's about all things flowing out of a complete joy in God and in Christ and in each other. I hope you see that in Paul's words here, that, that he's not just going about doing his Christian job. His words are affectionate. They're loving. They're about his delight in God and in his gospel and in his people. How else could you write a letter like this? How else will God be ultimately glorified in Paul without such rejoicing and delight simply because he has just showed to suck it up and learn how to be content? I just don't see it like that. And I think that if we, if we think about this and we're honest with ourselves, we know this is true because we often live like this, don't we? 
We place all of our hope and our joy in our things and in our stuff. Or we, we find contentment in our duty and just checking all the right boxes because it just makes us feel good. And that might last us when everything is going seemingly well. But when things go south, because they do and they will, all contentment goes out the window for us. Because everything we're finding our joy in that at that moment is temporary. It's not about temporary things or duty for Paul. It's about an eternal delight. It's about an eternal joy. Hear me if you haven't got this already. God isn't looking for us to merely be dutiful, church. He wants our delight. He wants our satisfaction and our contentment to be found in Him alone, always, because He is glorified greatly in it, but also because we're actually sustained in it. I love the way that John Piper uh, talks about our problem with duty over delight. Uh, I'm going to use my wife and I an example uh, in this metaphor, but this is, this is his metaphor. I can't steal it. Um, so imagine with me that I come home one night with flowers. I've made reservations to take my wife out. Uh, I found a sitter for our son, Thomas. And uh, I walk in. I tell her, I said, babe, uh, I got us a sitter, got you these flowers, got us reservations to our favorite place. Let's go out, just the two of us. All right? And she says, oh, I love these flowers. I love that you put so much thought into this. Scott, why did you do all this? All right? And I pause, and, and that was my first mistake. I never pause. And I look at her and I say, babe, because you're my wife and it's my duty. I have to. <laughs> yeah. She's going to punch me. All right. And in no way is she going to feel admonished or loved or rejoiced in. But if I say, babe, because you're my wife, I, I just love you so much. I have so much joy in you. How can I not want to do these things? I, I love taking you out to dinner. I love buying you flowers. I love spending time with you. That's the kind of joy and contentment that we see from Paul. And if you think, well, I mean, it, that's easy for him. It's Paul. I mean, the guy wrote most of the New Testament. I'm going to make some enemies here. Paul is only human. Paul would be like us, nothing but a wretched man dead in his sin, if not for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he himself recognizes that his joy and contentment is not of his own, but is given to him by the power of Christ. Paul's joy wasn't perfect, just like our joy isn't perfect, but it is real and it is lasting joy. And it's not always smiley and upbeat like we think it is, but joy in God does endure because it's being sustained in Christ. This is the meaning of Philippians 4.13, one of the most misinterpreted and overused passages in all of Scripture. Most of you know it. I can do all things through who strengthens me. I'm sorry. I don't think Paul was really concerned with you getting that extra rep in on the bench at the gym. Right? He probably wasn't thinking about that half a marathon he's got coming up next week. No. He is saying, I can be truly content, truly satisfied because I've found true joy in God alone. I will rejoice in the midst of all these things by the power of Christ who strengthens me for it. Who gives me willfully and purposefully the strength to glorify God no matter what. I know he will do this whether in life or in death. God will be glorified in me. And this is the fruitful evidence that I desire to see in all of you. Because this is the evidence of Christ at work. 
This indestructible joy, even when small, produces true contentment in us. And for Paul, contentment's not just this human act of the will. Contentment is a supernatural, generous gift from God. Verse 14, chapter 4, follow along with me. Paul says, I can be content in everything because of Christ, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So do we just write off all practical measures of need then? Well, no. Rather, I think it gives us another category to rejoice in. And we see this from Paul. His joy and contentment being found in God doesn't mean that he denies the practical measures of need that we have, but rather he shows that we are to recognize and rejoice that God's providing for us, that he is meeting our needs by him through his people, as we see here. Paul's joy rests in knowing that God will ultimately provide for him. Our joy this morning can rest in knowing that God will provide our needs for us. And he does this most often through the body of Christ, through us, through the church. I mean, I I hope that you have experienced this because God increases our joy in him through these things. God often increases my joy in him by giving me joy in you guys. Right? When, we, when we sing together on Sunday morning, it increases my joy in God. When I hear that you have helped out somebody in a time of need, it increases my joy in God. When we share a meal together on Wednesday or Thursday night, as I observe your joy being outworked, it increases to my credit. Right? It, it strengthens my joy in God. It's purposeful then, church, that we gather together and that we fuel one another's joy by caring for each other like the Philippians were doing for Paul. I think it's safe for us to say that the same joy that Paul had, he shared in with the Philippian church. That the Philippians' joy had also produced contentment in them and an appreciation for the generosity of God. And they showed that in their gift to Paul. This gift is pleasing to God because it's a direct reflection of his generosity, which is shown to us in the gift of Christ. He has provided for us our most essential need, church. Let that, let that fuel your trust and your joy in Him. And know that your continued joy in Him will produce contentment in all areas of life. And He works in our contentment to generously provide for one another. It's, it's this complete circle of joy and contentment and generosity that I, I hope you see in this text. Because God is the source of all of it and because God is glorified greatly in all of it. Near the end of this letter, we see Paul's joy and contentment is sustained within the verse of 19. It's what, it's what he rests in. It's what we can rest in this morning. Verse 19, chapter 4, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this? Because I think if we were honest, we would all shake our heads yes and say that we believe that. But do you live like you believe this? 
Do you live like you know that without a shadow of a doubt, your God is not only supplying your needs, but according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, the Savior that was given through the generosity of God that secured for us the greatest need we will ever have, the salvation of our souls, the the freedom of condemnation from our sin. Why has he done this? Because he is good. Because he is just, because he is generous to his people for the glory of his great name. And his glory is most shown in us through our joy and our contentment in him. Even weak and imperfect as it may be. So then how do we go after this kind of joy? How do we fight for joy? Because don't think for a minute that there is not a fight to be had. There is a battle for joy. Paul knows that there's a battle for joy. I believe it's, it's one of the main reasons that he writes this letter to the Philippians, to encourage them in the fight, to question where their true and ultimately sustaining joy rests. Hopefully this morning has caused you to ask that question. Where does my joy ultimately rest? Or maybe you feel like you're, you're struggling for joy in God, like you're in a season where it just seems like your joy has left you. Like you had it, and uh, and it just feels gone now. And you honestly, you honestly feel like you are fighting for it. Good. Yeah, good. Nobody fights for joy in God who hasn't already tasted joy in God. Right? I'll say that again. Nobody fights for joy in God who hasn't already tasted joy in God. So let me encourage those of you who feel that way. Even if your joy feels fleeting, it hasn't left you. Because your joy quite literally lives inside of you. The Spirit of God who sustains your joy lives in you, believer. And know that that same Spirit is of course helping you in your fight for joy. But redefine what joy actually looks like. And examine your life to see if maybe you're settling for temporary joys. The hard part about that is that we, uh, we actually like temporary joy, don't we? We like temporary contentment, being temporary, temporarily sustained. And man, it is so easy in the world that we live in today, isn't it? So with a click of a button on Amazon, it's within buying that next best thing that you want. It is a walk to the fridge. It is a fill in the blank with whatever you want. Yet I can guarantee you that none of those things have ever fully satisfied any of us, have they? We get them and in like two minutes we are literally on to the next best thing. Maybe our joy in God is fleeting because it's being met by a lesser desire or a sinful desire. I would ask you this morning, deny those temporary non-sustaining pleasures for a deeper, more eternal, more fulfilling, all-sustaining pleasure in God. Here are three things that I think help us in our fight for joy. If you're taking notes this morning, we pray for it. We fight against sin and we set our mind on the things of God. We pray for it, we fight against sin, and we set our mind on the things of God. We pray to God for joy in God and in each other. God should be the first place that we run to for joy because he's the source of joy. 
I mean, none of us, none of us go to Bueller's and buy a big old thing of yellow Smith's milk when what we want is really an ice cold glass of water. I know that's a horrible analogy. It's, it's, it's all I've got this morning. We go to the source of joy for joy. That's where Paul goes for joy. It's where Christ goes for joy. God will give you joy, believer. Trust him to do that work, but know that it might not fit into your categorical box of what you think joy should look like and that it might come in the most unpredictable of circumstances. Pray to the Lord for joy and wait on him to do the work. He will. And while you wait, fight. Fight your sin. It's my second point this morning. Fight for joy by fighting against your sin. Sin will rob you of your joy because it's what sin does. It separates. Not from, not from the love of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. God's, God's redemption in Christ covers every sin that we've ever committed or yet to commit. But your sin does you rob you of true joy. Right? So fight. Not in your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through our repentance. We do it by the power of Christ and the new creation that he has made us to be. Paul says this in Colossians 3, if you want to follow along with me, you're welcome to. Colossians 3, verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, or another translation, rejoice, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you have been raised with Christ, church, then seek the things that are above. It's to our great joy, and it's also my final point. We go after joy in God by setting our mind on the things of God. Paul says this in Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9, just before our text this morning. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things, church. Practice them and know that the God of peace is with you as you do. Practice prayer. Practice reading scripture and committing it to your heart. Practice being in fellowship with his body and with loving and bearing with one another in love. All of these things he uses generously to restore and fuel our joy. And we need this. You know why we need this? We need this because the world would suggest that following Christ actually means giving up your joy, losing your happiness, and the things that bring you feelings of contentment. But I would say, and more importantly, Scripture would say, following Jesus doesn't mean losing your joy or losing your contentment, not at all. But it does mean that they will be redefined and replaced, but with the light that lasts with contentment that carries and with joy that endures to the completion of our salvation when all these things will no longer be tainted by our sin and our suffering and our trials but will once and for all be complete in the glory of God. And while we wait for that day, rejoice. Rejoice by the power of Christ in the midst of suffering. Rejoice by crying out to God, knowing that he will help you in your fight for joy because our joy and our contentment now point to the glory that awaits us and they make God look as great and as glorious as he actually is. Because as Paul ends in verse 20, before his final greeting, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, to you be glory forever and ever. May your glory be shown in us through the joy that you have given us and may the understanding of your greatness grow in our hearts that through our joy in you, you would be made great among your people. I pray that we would make you great among those who don't know you. May they see the joy that we have in you in the midst of trial in the midst of undesirable circumstances, that it may give testimony to your greatness and they would see that it's not our own doing, but as a gift of your grace in Jesus Christ. So Father, we rejoice this morning. For you have generously brought us from death to life. You have provided for us our most essential need in Christ and you will continue to provide the elemental needs for your people through your people. Give us confidence this morning in Christ who for his joy endure the cross and despise the shame and is now seated in glory at the right hand of his greatest joy. It's through his joyful endurance that we are able to stand forever in enduring joy until the completion of our salvation. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.